morning for the sake of flipping back and forth. All the scripture readings are there. We'll start with our Old Testament reading. There's two of them from the book of Isaiah. One is Isaiah 42, 1 through 4, and the other is Isaiah 64, 1 through 5. And I want you to pay attention there to uh, what the prophet is describing. This will be uh, a topic that is brought forward in the sermon. And then likewise in Philippians 2, 5 through 11. So read along with me in your bulletin if you are able. Behold, my servant whom I uphold, my elect one in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the Gentiles. He will not cry out nor raise his voice, nor cause his voice to be heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break, a smoking flax he will not quench. He will bring forth justice for truth. He will not fail nor be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth and the coastland shall wait for his law. Isaiah 64. Oh, that you would rend the heavens, that you would come down, that the mountains might shake at your presence. As fire burns brushwood, as fire causes water to boil, to make your name known to your adversaries, that the nations may tremble at your presence. When you did awesome things for which we did not look, you came down, the mountains shook at your presence. For since the beginning of the world, men have not heard nor perceived by the ear, nor has the eye seen any God besides you who acts for the one who waits for him. You meet him who rejoices and does righteousness, who remembers you in your ways. You are indeed angry, for we have sinned. In these ways we continue, and we need to be saved. As we turn to the Apostle Paul in the book of Philippians for our epistle reading, Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 11. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who... Being in the form of God, did not count, consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. And being found in the appearance of a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Therefore, God also has highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow, of those in heaven, and of those on earth, and those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. And then our gospel reading, which is Mark 1, 9 through 13, which is also our sermon text this morning. So give attention to Mark 1, 9 through 13. And it came to pass in those days that Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And immediately coming up from the water, he saw the heavens parting and the spirit descending upon him like a dove. Then a voice came from heaven. You are my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And immediately the spirit drove him into the wilderness and he was there in the wilderness 40 days, tempted by Satan, and was with the wild beasts, and the angels ministered to him. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord endures forever. 
Praise be to God for the giving and the hearing of his word. Amen. Pop quiz, children. We just read all those passages. Who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? Now be careful. Your answer to this question is a matter of eternal life or death. Many have attempted to answer this question. How about this answer from the Dalai Lama? Jesus is a model for how to live my life. I consider him a universal teacher, a person of great integrity with natural authority who embodies the truth. Well, how very generous of him. But how deadly wrong. Let's try another one. Islam teaches that Jesus was a humble prophet who was born of a virgin, but he was not divine and cannot save you. Well, there's death behind door number two. Let's try one more. Maybe this one will will work itself out. The New Age teaches that Jesus attained salvation for himself by realizing he was divine and you can do that too. Hmm. Well, there's another deadly lie. And clearly we cannot get the answer to this question of who Jesus is from the world. See, Jesus is not merely a good universal teacher, nor is he merely a humble prophet. And he certainly did not come to teach us how to save ourselves. These are all lies from Satan. And like all plausible lies, they contain a grain of truth. Yet like any poison, no matter how sweet it seems or tastes, it's deadly. The Gospel of Mark, as we have before us this morning, was written to Gentile Christians, likely in Rome. Christians like you and I, who were not raised in the Jewish tradition. We're not raised with the Old Testament scriptures. And Mark's sole purpose of writing this gospel, this good news of Jesus Christ, if you were to look at verse 1, is to answer this very question, who is Jesus? Mark teaches us this answer throughout his gospel. With stunning imagery and a very fast pace, if you were to read the book of Mark, It would only take you about 20 minutes. It moves very quickly. It's a fast-paced gospel full of stunning vignettes. And in it, we see Jesus clearly presented throughout as the Son of God. The whole of Mark's gospel is that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, has come and is crucified for the forgiveness of your sins. Christ has come to be crucified for sinners. The Son of God came down from heaven and humbled himself in the form of a servant by his incarnation in order to save sinners. That's the message of the book of Mark. Amen. Let's close our Bibles and move on. Well, there's a little bit more we can open up here. Because in this first scene... This baptism and temptation scene, Mark shows us that Jesus is the highly humbled, highly honored, and most holy servant of Jehovah. He begins to open up to us who Jesus is. 
And he begins by showing us that Jesus is the humble, honored, and holy servant of Jehovah. And this morning I'd like to show that to you from these verses. As we will look at Jesus, the Son of God, we'll see that he is humbled. We will see that he is honored. And we will see that he is holy. So let's turn our attention to this wonderful uh, vignette, this image, this painting that the Apostle uh, has given to us this morning. And first we see that Jesus is humble. He is humble. Notice in verse 9, it says, It came to pass in those days, or in that day, that Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee. Children, this is like Mark is doing something like giving Jesus's address. He is telling us where Jesus is from. You could say that I am Andrew from Warrenville. Maybe that means something to someone somewhere. Very little meaning. But there's much meaning in where Jesus is from. Jesus being from Nazareth of Galilee tells us that Jesus came from very, very humble means. Very humble means. Our catechism tells us, particularly the larger catechism, question 46, when speaking of Christ's humiliation, says this. It asks, what was the estate of Christ's humiliation? And the answer is, the estate of Christ's humiliation was that low condition wherein he, for our sakes, emptied himself of his glory and took upon the form of a servant. In his conception, birth, life, death, and after his death until his resurrection. The shorter catechism opens this up a little bit. When it talks about Christ's life or being made in a low condition, it says that he was born in that low condition. What does it mean that Christ was born in a low condition? Well, simply that Jesus was not born into a wealthy, affluent, cushy family. No, Mark tells us that he came from Nazareth of Galilee. Just like a backwater. We'll know later in the Gospels, as Jesus' earthly ministry starts picking up and Jesus' teaching is spreading and his fame is going out, someone asks, what good can come from Nazareth? Well, dear Christian, all good, all glory has come from Nazareth. Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee. Jesus is humble. Jesus is that lowly servant of Jehovah. But his humbling doesn't just stop where he came from. It also includes what he came to do. Notice the second part of verse 9. And was baptized by John in the Jordan. Jesus humbled himself by being in that low condition. And as our catechism says, he also humbled himself by taking on or submitting himself to the law of God. Jesus comes out of Nazareth to, to go to John at the Jordan. So we see the movement of Jesus toward John. Ultimately, in the book of Mark, this movement will take us all the way to Jerusalem, all the way to the cross. 
But Jesus begins his earthly ministry by first taking on or submitting himself to the very law of God. Maybe you're sitting here thinking, well, why is that important to me? Well, here's the reality. The reality is that in Adam, each and every one of us have broken the law of God. Christ came to fulfill that law in order to save us from the penalty of us breaking that law in Adam. This work of Christ coming to John the Baptist is the beginning of him fulfilling the covenant of works. Christ has taken on every single requirement of the law, not because he needed it, not because he was sinful, but because you and I, dear Christian, are sinners. Christ came to die for sinners. The baptism of John in the Jordan was this baptism of repentance. If you were to look above in your Bible, Mark has told us who John is. He is the messenger who has gone out to prepare the way for this servant of Jehovah, make straight the paths. And John is proclaiming this baptism of repentance, a turning away from sin and a turning to this one who is to come. Indeed, it is Lord, the Lord Jesus. Now, we know in the other Gospels, if we were to look in Matthew's account, indeed, John refutes or pushes back a little bit against Jesus and says, I don't you don't need to be baptized by me. I need to be baptized by you. And Jesus says, no. I need to be baptized to fulfill all righteousness. Jesus was not baptized because he was a sinner. Jesus was baptized because you were a sinner. And this is not Jesus becoming anything that he wasn't already. And we'll look at that as we go. Remember, this is not Jesus being baptized for the forgiveness of his sins. It's Jesus being baptized for the forgiveness of your sins. Jesus has come. He has humbled himself, born in a low estate, and submitting himself to the law of God. Jesus is the humble servant of Jehovah. But he's not only that. Verses 10 and 11 show us that Jesus is the honored servant of Jehovah. So after Jesus is baptized, and after he's coming up from the water, not out of the water, we are good Presbyterians here. If anyone's in debate of that, we could talk about it later. Jesus went down to the Jordan, not in necessarily, but we can talk about that later. That's a fun passage to debate with your Baptist friends. It's not necessary that we read it that way. Jesus is coming up from the Jordan, and immediately, this is, this is uh, Mark's key phrase. You'll notice this throughout his gospel. If this is something that you want to kind of mark out in this gospel to follow the train of thought, this phrase, and immediately, kaiuthis is what it is in Greek. It's all throughout. And immediately, coming up from the water, he saw the heavens open. Jesus is honored by the Father, by what he saw, and by what he heard. This is where Isaiah comes directly in to Mark's gospel. Indeed, 
The apostle is quoting Isaiah indirectly. And remember, he's writing to us Gentiles. He's just showing us that it is. He's not giving us the citation necessarily. But this is clearly an allusion to the prophet Isaiah. Notice what happens. Jesus sees what first? Well, he sees the heavens parting. Now, in your English translations, there's going to be a word maybe parting as it is in the New King James. You might have split, tearing. The word underneath that word, though, in the Greek is an emphatic ripping apart, tearing apart. The heavens were torn open, were rent, as we read in Isaiah 64.1. Now, this word is used again by Mark. Used in chapter 15 at the crucifixion, Mark tells us that the veil of the temple was rent, torn apart. Well, the same thing is happening to the sky here. But we need to be careful, readers. Who is seeing this? Who is witnessing this, the sky being torn apart? It's Jesus. Now in the other Gospels, we're told that those around heard the voice from heaven. Those around heard or saw the Spirit descend upon Jesus. I'm not arguing that those are contradictory. But Mark's emphasis here is on Jesus' perceiving. Jesus is seeing. Jesus is hearing. He is having us to focus on this honor that was given specifically to Jesus. It's almost as if it doesn't matter if anyone else heard it. It doesn't matter if anyone else saw it. That this honor comes from the Father to the Son. And that's all that matters. Some commentators say here, and I think rightly so, that what Jesus saw when the heavens were torn apart was the glory set before him. This is the beginning of Jesus' earthly ministry. It's as if the Father is showing him what awaits him. Part of Jesus is humbling himself, taking on the form of a servant. He took on our nature. Jesus was a man of the Spirit. As we'll see, he is filled with the Spirit here. But Jesus felt fear. Jesus felt pain. Jesus had to have that hope set before him. John 17, Jesus is in the garden praying. He's crying tears of blood. Father, if you can take this cup away from me. Not my will, your will be done. Jesus had this glory set before him. The heavens were torn open and Jesus has shown the glory of the Father. That's not all. The Spirit descends upon him in the form of a dove or like a dove. Mark is not, again, arguing here that the Spirit looks like a dove. We don't know, but this is, it's adverbial. It's descending like a dove or as a dove. God is condescending to us a form that we can understand. He is describing the way that the Spirit descended. Some folks may make way too much of this and say that the Holy Spirit is a dove. There's a bunch of weird stuff. If you're going to do anything weird, don't do that, right? There's no, net, there's no doctrine here of the Spirit's bodily form being taught to us. It's the manner at which the Spirit was descending. 
Notice the Spirit descends upon or to Jesus. Directly to Jesus. Jesus saw the hope set before him. Jesus saw the Spirit descending to him. And then we have one of this most marvelous, uh, I couldn't even imagine being there if we heard it. We know later in the Gospel in chapter 9, the, the apostles, the disciples hear this same thing. They hear this theanthropic voice. They hear the word of God, the Father. And from this heaven split open comes this voice that Jesus heard. You are my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Jesus is honored by what he saw. Jesus is honored by what he heard. He is told, you are my beloved son. Now you might be thinking, well, did Jesus just learn of this reality? Is that what this passage is teaching us? That before Jesus was baptized, he had no idea who he was. His mama told him he was very special. All of his friends were like, you're kind of weird. And Jesus is like, I figured it out. I am the son of God. No. No, this is recorded not for his sake, but for ours. This is a declaration of God the Father to the Son recorded for you and I, dear Christian, sitting here today. This is a direct testimony from the Father to the Son by the Holy Spirit of who this Jesus is. He is the Son of God. Now, the Son of God isn't just simply... It isn't just simply his divinity. That's not what's being described necessarily here. It's not as if God is, the Father is saying, Behold, this is the second person of the Trinity. That's true. But that's not all that's being communicated in this name. The Son of God is a office. The Son of God is a promise fulfilled. The book of Isaiah speaks of this. Ezekiel speaks of this. Psalm 2 speaks of this. The Son of God is an office name, and particularly it's linked to his kingship. Behold, my beloved Son, and if we were to read Psalm 2, verse 7, we would finish that sentence with, the one whom we are to kiss. David was called the beloved Son. Jesus is the ultimate Son of God. Which makes sense of the second part of that. In whom I am well pleased. The Father is well pleased in the Son. Not just sons, the Son, Jesus, the Son of God. Your sins, dear Christian, are forgiven in Christ. The Father looks upon Christ. He is pleased with Jesus' righteousness. And He is only pleased with your righteousness inasmuch as it comes from the Son. Jesus is your representative. He is our federal head. He is the one who brings peace between us and the Father. The Son brings us as sons, adopted sons and daughters, sons, 
Specifically, though, and we can get into that another sermon another day, we are all sons of God, even you ladies. We are brought in, in Him. In Him. You don't have to read very far into the Apostle Paul to know that it is all of Jesus. Salvation is all of Him. The Father is pleased in Him. In Him alone. So Jesus is highly honored. This brings us to our last section. This highly honored one who has humbled himself is filled with the Holy Spirit and is shown to us in verses 12 and 13 as the Holy One of Jehovah, the Holy Servant. Notice what happens in the beginning of verse 12. Immediately, there's that word again. It's the same word underneath verse 10. Immediately, the Spirit drove him into the wilderness. Maybe your Bible has a little footnote here for the word drove. If it does, it would likely have one at parting. See, John or Mark is not just merely saying that Jesus was compelled to go as if he was done seeing all of this glorious reality of who he was. He's done hearing the voice of the Father and then goes, you know what? I think I'm going to go out in the wilderness for 40 days. That's what I think I'll do. No, the Spirit compels Jesus. Literally throws him out into the wilderness. Casts him out. Why? Well, there's two portions of this. The Spirit driving Jesus out shows a very visceral and real image for us to understand that Jesus is wholly set apart from all other sons, from all other servants. Jesus is sanctified, set apart, holy. Jesus is the only one who could do what the Spirit was about to work in him to do, what the Father was going to accomplish through him. Jesus was the only one. We don't see the the Spirit casting out Jesus and all of his disciples into the wilderness. No, the Spirit takes him, the beloved Son, casts him into the wilderness. So it shows us that Jesus is separated from all others. That Jesus goes into the wilderness, though, might be a little, uh, seem a little anticlimactic. You go, okay, well, he was already in the wilderness. There is movement here. We notice he came from Nazareth. He goes out to John in the wilderness, and then he's cast further out into the wilderness by the Spirit. But what is this place? What is this wilderness that Jesus is being cast into? Why the wilderness? Remember, Jesus is taking on all of the law. One of the things, one of the things that the wilderness points to is the garden. It's an antitype of the garden. Adam was in the garden of God. This perfect environment placed there by God and fell. And we and Adam fell. Adam fell in a garden. Adam had everything he needed, everything he could desire. It was perfect. But Jesus, the second Adam, has come. And the Spirit drives him out into this barren place, this wilderness, 
for 40 days to be tempted by the adversary or the Satan. This is the serpent of old, the dragon. This is the very Satan that tempted Adam in the garden. Where Adam fell at the first temptations, Jesus endures 40 days of being tempted by this adversary, our adversary. Jesus goes out into the wilderness to fulfill the covenant of works for you and for me. And he does. Jesus is holy. He withstood the temptations of Satan for 40 days. I want you to notice this. Throughout this passage, but it's particularly important here. This is the fulfillment of Isaiah 42. But you notice here, maybe you didn't catch it. Maybe you don't know, you young ones who haven't been reading for that long. All of these verbs are passive. From the very beginning to even now, all of this has been done to Jesus. Jesus is not the main actor. What does that mean? He is the humble servant. He is the lamb who was taken to slaughter, who did not protest. He goes into the wilderness to be tempted by Satan. Yes, he goes out, you could say, in the, on the offensive, right? Jesus is going out to defeat our enemy. But Jesus goes out and is just absolutely accosted by Satan. I can't even imagine what it would be like to be in the desert for 40 days. And I cannot even imagine what it would be like in those 40 days to be tempted to be accosted by the prince of lies. Do you not think that that Satan threw out every single weapon that he had against our Lord and Savior? Do you think he held back anything? No. Do you think that Jesus was out there camping? Roasting hot dogs on a fire? Waiting out 40 days? I bet every waking moment was absolutely sheer terror in the sense that he was never left alone. Satan and his minions were after him doggedly for 40 days. So much so that the angels had to minister to him. Jesus in his holiness withstood the devil. Not for him. For you and for me. Jesus was upheld by the Father. This is another fulfillment of Isaiah that we read. I will uphold him. And how do we know Jesus was upheld by the Father? Well, yes, he endured the 40 days. But there's this little tidbit that Mark gives us. He says he was with the wild beasts. Now, this is like the wilderness, almost exact opposite of the garden where Adam fell in a lush garden where the animals were submissive to him. Jesus withstood Satan in the wilderness where there were wild beasts. So not only was he being accosted by Satan, but there was the threat of wild beasts. This is maybe another way of saying that Jesus was really, really, really in the wilderness, not just kind of. Jesus wasn't like one of those survivalist shows on the Discovery Channel where you catch the highway right behind them and they're complaining about how long they've been out in the wilderness. No, Jesus was way out there. But Jesus endured this because the Father upheld him. 
Remember when I told you that the Son of God is not just His deity, it's also His office? Well, Mark gives us this uh, understanding, kind of fleshes that out a little bit more when he says that He was ministered to by the angels. Whenever we see Jesus interacting with the angels, He's not interacting with them as the angels were to interact with you and I. No, He is interacting with them as the leader of the heavenly hosts. This is Jesus' army, if you will, coming to minister to Him. Do you know, especially you little, little children, listen, Angels are gathered around us right now. Angels are gathered around us listening to the word of God being proclaimed because they long to see this mystery that you are being told right now of who Jesus is. The angels are present in our worship. The angels are ministering in that sense. They are serving on behalf of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And they minister here to Jesus. A total side note here on the ministry of angels. I was talking to uh, Stella and Naomi, and I try not to use my children in illustration, but it was good conversation. Uh, you talk about the presence of angels, it can be quite terrifying. It ought not to be for Christians. Uh, the angels are for our protection. The angels are... God's ministers for us, for our salvation. But do you realize, and we can't see this, the Apostle Paul tells us as much is true, there's a whole host of battle going on right now. That you and I are sitting in this room unaccosted by forces unknown is the work of God's Spirit and through His angels. We ought not to ever take lightly worship. And we ought never to take lightly worship that is done in freedom. It is one for us, even by the heavenly angels. And it's these same angels that ministered to Jesus in the wilderness. And it shows us that Jesus is the commander of the hosts of, arm, of the Lord's armies. He is the Holy One of Israel who has come to lead captivity captive. So this is Jesus. Let me ask you, does your answer to this question of who Jesus is sound more like the gospel of Mark? Or does it sound like the world? Have you considered the consequences of having the wrong answer about who Jesus is? Have you searched the scriptures to make sure that you are trusting in the true Christ? If you haven't, or if you don't know Jesus today, I call upon you in the presence of the holy angels to trust in this Lord Jesus who is humbled, honored, and holy for your salvation. Let me ask you, dear Christian, have you lost sight of this Jesus? Have you lost sight of the one who has come to take away your sins? Are you putting your hope and your trust in anyone or anything else. Search your hearts. This isn't a question you can answer right away. If you are, put away your idols. Come back to the Lord Jesus. He's crucified for you. He fulfilled the covenant of works for you. He has given you all the Father's grace. 
I call you to behold the beloved Son in whom the Father is well pleased. Jesus, the servant of Jehovah, is come. Will you trust in him? Amen. Let's pray. Holy Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, indeed, Jesus, the one who is crucified for us and for our salvation, we give you all the thanks and glory that is due your name. Lord, we praise you for the grace that you have given us. And Lord, we ask humbly that you would enable our hearts and our minds to apprehend Christ Jesus as he really is. That we would not have a false view of Jesus. That we would see him rightly and clearly. And that we would put our faith in him and in him alone. We ask that you would apply that to us. Even as we pray the prayer that Christ Jesus taught us to pray, saying, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever. Amen.